Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And we have finished our journey through the Ten Commandments, but Colonel, my understanding is you're ready to help us better understand the influence that Hebrew law has had on our own system of laws. Exactly, and I might just begin by mentioning to everybody here that we are in the Easter season right now, and I'd like to wish everyone a blessed Good Friday, blessed Holy Week, and a blessed Easter Sunday. But talking about Hebrew law, in fact, you know, before we go into Hebrew law here, maybe we ought to even begin by talking a little bit about the resurrection and the crucifixion, because these are central to our faith. And I'm just going to go a little different direction here right now and suggest that when you want to defend the Christian faith against those who attack it as irrational or superstitious or unbelievable, a good place to start probably is the resurrection. And let me suggest several reasons for starting with the resurrection as a major point for defending the Christian faith. And the first of these is that the resurrection is a very positive note that addresses a question that people ask and want a positive answer to. It's the question that was asked way, way back in the book of Job, which some believe may be the oldest book of the Bible. They go back to as far as 2000 BC, even before the book of Genesis was written. And Genesis, of course, goes to events that go way before that, but Genesis was probably written by Moses, and probably around 1400 BC, Job may be older. But one of the questions Job is asking there is, he is going through all this suffering, and his friends are there trying to help him, but not being very helpful. And anyway, question is asked, if a man die, shall he live again? And obviously, that's on everybody's mind. And despite the assurances that we have in the scripture, we wonder about those questions sometimes. Will we live after death? And as we fade into those last moments of consciousness, probably no matter how strong our faith is, the question is, what's next? What happens now? That probably is on everybody's mind. And I might just suggest, besides the fact that the Scripture repeatedly speaks about life after death, the Scripture repeatedly speaks about heaven and hell, I might add, but that... There are some, also some very sensible reasons for believing that we will live after we go through physical death. One of those reasons is consider God's love. If God loves us this much, enough to create us, enough to place us here in the world and care for us and so on, that love wouldn't diminish once we're dead. You would think that he would want to keep us and have a place for us in his kingdom in the future. Second is God's economy. You think of all God has done 
in the work of creation and then preserving us, preserving us through all the natural disasters, but also preserving us from the corrupting influence of sin, but especially sending his son into the world, Jesus, to die for our sins. Why would he do all of that if once we die, it's all over with? It would make sense in God's economy that if he is going to invest this much in us, that he wants us to continue. And a third reason would be God's justice. If we believe that God is a just God, well, we don't really see that much justice in the world today. Oh, there's some. And I would like to believe more here in the United States than in other countries of the world. I once said, after being a prosecutor for a period of time, I once said, if you have any, any doubts about the doctrine of sin, just be a prosecutor in the courts. And then think about our legal system. And then think that the legal system in almost every other country around the world is worse. And point of the matter is, when we look to justice, well, there is a lot of injustice in this world. A lot of guilty people commit crimes and get away with it. And there are some who are innocent who get wrongly convicted. Even outside the courts, a lot of wrongs are done. And these don't seem to be righted. Unless there is a judgment after death, how can we believe that God is a God of perfect justice? But the resurrection also, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, gives us hope that we too will be resurrected from the dead. And how do we believe the resurrection? Well, let's look to some reasons for believing in the resurrection. And I'm going to go back to the man who lived in the early 1800s. His name was Simon Greenleaf. Now, Simon Greenleaf was a Harvard law professor. He was a professor of the subject of evidence. Evidence is the subject of looking to how we prove things in court, what kinds of evidence are admissible and what kinds are not that hearsay evidence is not admissible because it's less reliable, but there are circumstances in which we do accept hearsay evidence and what those circumstances are, other things like this. These are what we call evidence law. And Simon Greenleaf was considered to be the English-speaking world's leading expert on the subject of evidence. He had textbooks that he would write for law schools on evidence. And his textbook was the standard that was used in the vast majority of law schools all across the English-speaking world. And, of course, that was in the early 1800s. And now that we have new textbooks like Ladd and like McCormick and others, you find even in these that they contain footnotes and citations to Simon Greenleaf. Well, Simon Greenleaf was an unbeliever. He thought Christianity was a bunch of nonsensical superstition written by ignorant men. And he decided, I've heard that he was encouraged by some of his law students, to devote himself 
to the study of the Gospels so that he could disprove them. And he took upon that task of disproving the Gospels by showing that according to the rules of evidence, these simply don't stand up. And he undertook a detailed study of this, and by the conclusion of his study, he was a firm believer in the truth of the Gospels, a strong, committed Christian, and he wrote a classic work that is titled Testimony of the Evangelists, the evangelists meaning Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he asks the types of questions there that a lawyer might ask in court. He asks, first of all, how do we know that these really are the works of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And he goes to what is called in law the ancient documents rule, a rule that says that in whenever we have a document that is apparently aged, if it is found in its proper repository, that is where you'd expect it to be, and if it bears no evident marks of forgery, we presume that it is genuine, and it devolves upon the critics to prove that it is false. Well, he says the Gospels are found in their proper repository, the Scriptures, and in the Church, which is where you would expect them to be. They bear no evident marks of forgery, and therefore we presume that these are, in fact, the works of of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, then he comes to the next question, and that is, why should Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John be believed? These are just a bunch of ignorant Jews, aren't they? What about them gives us any reason to think that they are credible? And he proceeds to examine the credibility of each of them. Starting with Matthew. Matthew, and we're going to have to come back to Matthew in just a minute, but I feel sorry for Matthew sometimes. Here he is, this tax collector, among all of these disciples who were fishermen. Can you imagine traveling with them all these years, listening to these fishermen with their stories about the one that got away and so on? He has to put up with this, and of course, as a tax collector, the ones that get away from him, well, they regard those as the heroes. So let's finish this after the break. to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, as we went to break, you were about to tell us the story of a tax collector by the name of Matthew. Yes, and I guess it's appropriate to think about tax collectors this time of year because taxes are due federal. I guess they're going to do do on Monday the 18th because Friday the 15th is a holiday and then they don't count the weekend. So, but have to get those in, I guess, and Anyway, I think I might have mentioned to you last week that I thought it would be a good idea if we would change the day the taxes are due. Instead of making them due on April 15th, we should make them due on the first Monday of November. In other words, the day before we vote. And then we pay our taxes. The next day, we go to vote on whether or not we should keep in office those people that impose those taxes. 
I like that idea. <laughs> I think if we did that, it might make these <clears throat> legislators much less likely to raise taxes if they knew that they'd have to face the voters just <clears throat> the day before we paid. Actually, when I said the day before taxes, I'd say probably the day after. <clears throat> okay, well, anyway, let's take a look at Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector, and tax collectors were probably in more disrepute in Judea back at this time than they are in the United States today, because tax collectors were collecting from Rome. Rome was a conqueror nation that governed Judea as a conquered province. But the way they would collect taxes is they would contract these out to a private collector. Now, let's say that the <clears throat> Roman officials would decide that this particular region of Judea was liable for about a million talents in taxes. So, a tax collecting company, let's say Matthew Incorporated, would come to the Roman officials and say, we will agree to be responsible for collecting the taxes from this district, and for the privilege of collecting those taxes, we will pay Rome 500,000 talents. And then Rome gives Matthew Incorporated the authority to collect the taxes in this region, and everything that they can collect above and beyond that 500,000 is their profit. So they have every incentive to try to shake you down for every shekel, every farthing, every mite that you have in your possession, which means that a tax collector has to be a hard-headed realist. He is going to be dealing with people who are trying to get out of paying taxes and going to tell them stories like, well, you know, I'm a fisherman here in Capernaum there by the Sea of Galilee, and because of the weather conditions, it seems like the tilapia. By the way, that was the main fish that they would catch then and now there in the Sea of Galilee, tilapia. And as a result, in Israel today, tilapia is many times referred to as St. Peter's fish. So if you want to go to a restaurant and order St. Peter's fish, and the waitress says, what's that? Well, it gives you an opportunity to share something from the Bible. But anyway, so, you know, the weather only... Tilapia, they just haven't been biting. In fact, with the sun being under clouds and so on, they've all gone, migrated over to the other end of the Sea of Galilee. And, and so I just haven't had nearly as much income this year. Or I'm a sheep herder. And, you know, in the hills there, it's been dry this year. And my sheep haven't had much to eat and much to drink. And they haven't produced wool and mutton like they should. And it's been a, it's been a rough year financially. Well, Matthew, as a tax collector, has to be able to see through stories like that. Now, consider this then, that this man, the author of the first of the Gospels, as he records those miracles, this is a man who should be very, very good at telling a fish story, pardon me the expression, from something that is genuine. And, and this hard-headed realist, is one of the authors of the gospel. Then we go to Mark. Now, Mark 
probably came from a fairly well-to-do home, probably was pretty well-educated. He was not an apostle, but he was very close to the apostle Peter. In fact, he served, you might say, as the executive secretary for Peter, meaning that he handled Peter's correspondence for him, he kept his records for him, filed his papers for him, and so on. If Peter was going to go somewhere and preach, chances are Mark would be the one who would go with him to make the arrangements in advance and so on. Here is a man who is very capable of keeping records, storing records, saving them, looking them up, and so on. This is a man who would be the person you could consult about dates and times and places and events and people and so on like that. This man has a mind for detail and a mind for organization. Another credible source. And then we look at Luke. Now, Luke is a physician. He is probably not a Jew. He's probably Greek, possibly from a noble family. And he seems to be very familiar with titles of nobility, customs among nobility, and so on. But it's especially interesting when we see miracles of healing or when we see the records of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. Luke records details, medical details, that the others do not. Again, I think just in human terms alone, totally outside the question whether there is divine inspiration here. Luke is a very credible source. And finally, John. John is, well, we think there's just a young fisherman, a young fisherman boy, you might say, and he was one of the youngest of the disciples, we believe, but he may well have come from a fairly well-to-do family there along the Sea of Galilee. We see that his family owned a fishing boat. They had people working for them, and so they may have been fairly well-to-do, and John may have had some education, but beyond that, John is the probably the only disciple who does not suffer the death of a martyr. And he also is the last of the apostles to die. He lives probably well after 100 AD. And if he was, say, 10 years younger than Jesus, then maybe he's born around 10 AD. So he probably lived well into his 90s. He had a most interesting career of service, serving as the Bishop of Ephesus for many, many years, being in touch with many of the Apostolic Fathers, and also spending time there as an exile on the island of Patmos, where he received the revelations from God that led to the book of Revelation. And he writes considerably later than the others. The other Gospels are probably written in the area between 50 to 60 AD. John probably writes after 90 AD, after he's had a long time to reflect on these things. And we find John writing more from a philosophical standpoint about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and other expressions like this that you don't see in the other Gospels. So from a human standpoint, these four apostles, I think, can be said to be highly credible people, not even considering the possibility that their works are inspired by God. So we look to them then and consider them credible, 
And Simon Greenleaf says that they are entitled to the presumption that we employ in the courts that we presume that people tell the truth unless they have a motive otherwise. So the presumption is that they are truth-telling people. But do they have any motive to tell otherwise? Well, in fact, they are strongly pressed to deny the gospel, and they maintain it, as we're going to see right after this break. to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, you were describing how one would uh, would test the uh, the truthfulness of a statement. For instance, uh, the one of the Gospels. Sounds like we have a pretty strong case in favor of uh, those who wrote those, those Gospels. Yes, but the next thing Simon Greenleaf says is we look to the question... Do they have any motive to lie? Well, all the motivation would be to deny the truth of the resurrection. As Greenleaf says, their master had perished on the cross, the death of a common criminal. And they can expect a similar punishment if they persist in pursuing this faith. In fact, with the exception of John, every one of the apostles, we believe, died a martyr's death for what he believed, for what he taught. Why would they pursue this claim that Jesus died and rose again from the dead if it were not, in fact, true? Regularly, the authorities would be threatening with disinheritance, that is, losing their family estates and so on, losing their jobs. Regularly, they'd be threatened with imprisonment, torture, death, disgrace, and the like for preaching the gospel. They have all kinds of motives pressed upon them to deny the truth of the Christian faith and back away from it and stop preaching. But they continue. And whenever one of them dies, the others continue with greater fervor than before. Why would they do this? Unless they truly had seen the resurrected Christ and truly believed what they were saying. Then he asks, all that is assuming that they're good, well-meaning people. Now, let's suppose that these disciples are, in fact, bad men, villainous men. Well, if they're villainous men, we need to look at two possibilities. Do they believe in a judgment of God after death? Or don't they believe that? Now, if they do that, if they do believe that they're going to be judged by God after they die, and they have simply made up a false story about this resurrected Christ, they know that God is not going to judge them very kindly for this. In fact, that would be blasphemy. So if they believe in 
a judgment after death, they certainly wouldn't make up a false story about Christ and have to account to God for that. On the other hand, if they don't believe there's any judgment after death, then why would they be making up a story that is going to get them nothing but persecution, ridicule, oppression, jail, and death in this life? If this life is all there is for them, why would they ensure themselves misery by inventing this story of the gospel? And Greenleaf says, there are no answers to these questions, except that these were men who truly saw the risen Christ and wrote with certainty and sincerity about what they believed. And then we have another, and that is the Apostle Paul. And Paul is a lawyer. Paul did not see Jesus during this life, but Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And he's a very good lawyer. Paul is of the law school. You know, they had traveling law schools taught by Pharisees in that day. And he is, as he says, of the school of Gamaliel, which is considered to be the Harvard Law School of its day, or the Brigham Young Law School of its day, the Oak Brook Law School of its day. It's considered to be the top. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he lays out the case for the resurrection. Talks about those who saw Jesus at the tomb. Talks about how Christ appeared on the road to Emmaus. Talks about how he appeared to the entire 12 on various occasions. Talks about how on one occasion he appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. And then he adds, some of these, most of these are still living, though some have fallen asleep, that is, some have died. Why does he add that little rabbit trail detail? Because he's saying to people in that time, you can check this out. If you don't believe me, go talk to those 500 witnesses and see what they say. And you can be sure that the Romans, the Greeks, and the Jews would all be checking out Paul's story. And if any one of them had said, no, Paul just made all that up, I never said any such thing. Or, yes, I was there, and I thought I saw the risen Christ at that time, but that was a long time ago. There was a lot of emotion at that time, so maybe I just got caught up in the spirit of the moment. If any one of them had said that, you can be sure that the next edition of the Jerusalem Post would have as a headline, witnesses say Paul lied, and they don't. Paul, then, is also a very credible source for the resurrection. Anyway, so, as John Warwick Montgomery says, when you look to the resurrection, first of all, it answers positively something that people very much want to believe. Secondly, the evidence is overwhelmingly in its favor, as we've just seen. Credible witnesses there in the four gospel writers, the summation of the Apostle Paul, of the numerous witnesses that saw Jesus resurrected. And then the third thing that he says is that alternative explanations just simply don't make sense. People sometimes try to give other explanations as to why there is a claim for the resurrection, but 
try to say that, no, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Here's why people believe this. One that sometimes raised is, well, the women and the disciples just went to the wrong tomb by mistake. If that had been the case, all the authorities would have had to do is go to the right tomb, produce the body, and case closed. It's over with. And they didn't. Another explanation is, in fact, this is one that the soldiers who guarded the tomb were told to say, say that the disciples came and stole the body while we slept. Now, wait a minute. Rome probably had the most disciplined army in the history of the world up to that time, and very few would exceed that or even equal it afterward. The punishment for sleeping on post was the death penalty. And they're confessing to a capital crime? It doesn't seem likely. And the whole story is just very suspect. I would love to have them on the witness stand and ask them, okay, now, you're saying that you were asleep this entire time. That's right. Now, you do know that under Roman law, that's a capital offense, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yes. And you are saying here under oath that you committed this capital crime of sleeping on post? Well, yes. And you were asleep the entire time this happened? Yes. Didn't stir in the least? No, didn't stir at all. And that's true of all of you? Yes, that's true of all of us. We didn't stir the whole time. And you're saying that these disciples came on the scene while you were asleep. That's right. And you're saying that they moved that stone. Now, that's a big stone. That would be a pretty massive undertaking, wouldn't it? Well, yes. That would make a lot of noise, wouldn't it? And you didn't awake during that time at all? No. Didn't even stir, not one of you, while that stone is being moved? No. And then you're saying they went into the tomb, and they took the body of Jesus, they took it out of the tomb. All this time, you're asleep. That's right. And then they left with the body. And all this time, you were sound asleep. That's right. Okay, now, if you really were asleep this whole time, how do you know that's what happened? The whole story makes no sense. And then we're going to say a little more about these stories in just a little bit here, but we need to take a break. Next one, what about that Jesus just was in a coma? Swoon theory, as it's called. Talk about that after the break.
Welcome back to Constitution Classroom. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. This is our final segment today. Colonel, take it away. Well, the other theory that is commonly raised is, as we call it, swoon theory or coma theory. A fellow named Schoenfield advanced this in a book many decades ago called The Passover Plot. But the idea here is that when Jesus was on the cross, he didn't really die. He fell into unconsciousness, a swoon or, or a coma, and they thought he was dead. And they put him in the tomb, and there in the tomb, he regained consciousness, and they thought he had risen from the dead. Well, again, this is a very, very dubious theory for many reasons. First of all, we know that when Jesus is on the cross, you have these Roman centurions there who undoubtedly have supervised many, many crucifixions. They certainly would be able to distinguish swoons or unconsciousness from death. And they concluded that he was dead. But also we have the leading centurion there who takes a spear and thrusts that spear into Jesus' side. Now the biblical account says that blood and water flowed out of that wound, which suggests to us then that the heart was pierced. That would certainly mean death. Then, once he's taken down from the cross, and certainly checked for pulse or anything else like that at that time, and there is absolutely no, nothing that would suggest he's alive, and these centurions and those who probably prepared many bodies for burial before, they are all satisfied that he is dead. Next thing they do is they wrap him in a shroud. Now, a shroud is about 30 feet long. It's a piece of cloth about 30 feet long. And they would wrap that around him, around and around and around and around. That's going to be a pretty strong piece of cloth, especially when it's wrapped around the body that many times. And then they anoint him with spices and the like. And then they put him in the tomb. Now, they're in the tomb for three days. He has no food or water. Whether or not he even has air, it may be that the stone did not make it completely airtight, but even there, that's a question. Let's just suppose possibly, through all of this, he has retained consciousness, or he has, re he has not died, and then he regains consciousness. Here he is. He's lost a lot of blood through the spear in his side, the nail wounds in his hands and feet, the crown of thorns on his head, the scourging on his back, lost a lot of blood through this. He's had no food and water for three days, and still he regains consciousness. And here he is in a shroud, a 30-foot shroud that's wrapped and wrapped and wrapped around him. He manages to, this emaciated state, to break himself free from that shroud, then manages to push aside the stone. And if there's resistance from the guards, he manages to overpower the guards. If that happened, that would be a greater miracle than a resurrection from the dead. Again, that explanation doesn't make sense. And then there is the Muslim explanation. The Muslim explanation is that 
As the Quran says, Jesus never died, but it was made to appear so. The Quran says a great deal about Jesus. But anyway, those words, it was made to appear so, most Muslims interpret that to mean that when Jesus was about to be crucified, God caused his likeness to fall on somebody else, maybe Simon the Cyrene, maybe Barabbas, maybe another person. So this person finds himself looking like Jesus and being nailed to a cross. Doesn't seem to protest, at least the Bible doesn't record any protest from him. And Jesus makes his escape. Well, the improbability of that story is pretty obvious, but consider this. This comes from a man named Muhammad, writing about 620 A.D., something that supposedly was told to him by the angel Gabriel, who was told it by a god named Allah. Compare that, a man in Saudi Arabia in 620 A.D., versus the gospel writers, the account of Paul, the witnesses there, and so on. Whole question of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit aside, which is the more credible account? Anyway, like I say, the explanations, the, the swoon theory, the wrong tomb theory, the stolen body theory, the likeness theory, none of these make any sense at all. And so we're left with the resurrection. Next point that John Warwick Montgomery makes is the other doctrines of the Christian faith flow from the resurrection. Obviously, if Jesus was raised from the dead, he must have died. So there we have the crucifixion. And ordinary people don't rise from the death, from the dead. So there we have some reason to believe that Jesus is not simply an ordinary man. Gives us the basis for believing in the virgin birth, basis for the miracles, and so on. We also know that we haven't seen Jesus walking around in these last 1900 years. And so he must have ascended. And if he ascended, he is going to return. So all the other doctrines of the Christian faith fall into place when we accept the resurrection. So certainly, as we do a Christian apologetic, we go all through the doctrines of the Christian faith, but particularly, the resurrection is a great place to start. And that's a good place for us to think about right now, as we are approaching, as we are in Holy Week, as we are approaching Good Friday, and as we are approaching Resurrection Day or Easter Sunday. You know, there's another question that is sometimes raised here. What did Jesus do between the time when he died on the cross and the time when he rose? Well, some believe that he descended into hell. In fact, the scriptures would indicate that. Peter says that he went and preached to the spirits in prison who were one time disobedience, disobedient in the days of Noah. And Second Peter and also the book of Jude talk about angels who sinned, who were disobedient in the time of Noah. What happened on Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? Jesus, I believe, descended into hell. And there in hell, he made a triumphant proclamation that believers 
are now no longer under the curse of sin and are free to go to heaven. And further, that he read a death sentence upon the demons and the powers of hell. So between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, let's not forget Holy Saturday, another very important day in the church year and in our Lord's earthly ministry and as we trace the Christian faith. Well, Brian, we've prepared for our Easter weekend now. So what thoughts do you have at this point? I just have really been enjoying listening as you have uh, helped lay out some of the the logical as well as factual uh, ways that we could approach uh, the the Easter story. And I know for some people, um, it's you know it's a matter of faith. They don't they don't need anything to logically back it up. But um, I, I saw a meme that I thought was kind of appropriate. I'll share that with you. Someone had had posted there is uh, there there are numerous world religions, but there is only one empty tomb. And I thought, ooh, that's, that's actually a, a very poignant way of putting it. Very well said. You know, there was a theologian about a thousand years ago named Anselm in England. And Anselm wrote a book called Curtius Homo, that is why God became man. And in that, he asked the question about Jesus' death on the cross. He asked, well, could somebody die for the sin of another person? And he said, well, no, we're all sinners, so everybody has to die for his own sin. And then he said, but let's suppose you had somebody that was completely righteous. Could that person die for somebody else's sin? And Anson says, yes, but only one, only one other person. You have an infinite number of sinners out there, infinite number of sins. A completely righteous person could die only for the sin of one other person. But he said, Jesus is not just one righteous man. Jesus, the Son of God, is infinite man. And as infinite man, he can die for an infinite number of people. Courteous Homo by Anselm. Excellent work on the crucifixion and resurrection. 